at the heart of what we are looking at today is basically Paul writes and he gives us a definition for what Scripture is. Now, I'm going to have you put your pen or finger and mark 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, but we're going to begin in an unlikely of, one of the most unlikely of places. We're going to begin in Ezekiel. You see, what Scripture does in our lives is something completely amazing. If, if you were to, to go online and you were to Google how to be a good pastor or 10 ways to grow the church, you're going to find all kinds of ideas, everything from, you know, you want lighting to be this way, you want your dress to be that way. If, depending on if you're in an ur- urban or a rural setting, you know, you might want to wear cowboy boots or you might want to, you know, have a biker church or you might want to meet in a club or you might want to offer refreshment and you might want to do a variety of things. But the heart of what it is to be a Christian, the heart of what it is to be a church, rises and falls on your opinion of the text. If you're in a church that is reverencing anything and setting anything above the text, pragmatism above the text, um, church church growth methodology, which comes out of the 80s and 90s, above the text, then you need to evaluate it. Now, you can have good things, pragmatic things that come from the text, but we can't place pragmatism above the text because when we do that, we're following pragmatism. We're not following the God of Scripture. And this is what the God of Scripture can do. Looking at Ezekiel 37, we see that Ezekiel is taken out into a valley. It starts off, he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And behold, it was full of bones. And he led me around and among them. And behold, there were very many of them on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So this is the picture. Ezekiel's out there and he's walking on this plain or he's walking in this valley. And there are bones Everywhere, every step, you can imagine he hears the crunching of bone as he steps. And there's no, he says they're very dry, there's no skin, there's no ligament, there's no muscle any longer attached to it. They are just dry, dead bones. There is nothing in these bones that gives any evidence that life remains in them. So God poses this question to Ezekiel. He's got a pretty obvious response. God turns to Ezekiel and he says, can these bones live? Imagine, you're in a field of waste. Dry bones under your feet, all around you as far as you can see. And the question is posed to you, is there life in them? Can these bones live? Ezekiel offers the safe answer. He says, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put my breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So we find Ezekiel there in verse 7. It says, he prophesied as he was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Elijah follows the word of the Lord. He is speaking to these bones. They come together. They are being assembled. You can imagine shoulders are are coming up and legs are forming. You've got the femur coming in and you've got the rib cage coming back together and you've got the skull forming itself and you've got collarbones, which some of us have broken ones, coming back together. And he stands there and then he sees them become to be wrapped in flesh. He sees before him nothing more than what we might see if we go to a funeral. He sees dead bodies made to look alive. He sees dead bodies made to look alive. There was no breath in them. Then he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You see, that's what the word of God can do. That's what the word of God can do. And you can, you can go to any church anywhere in the world and they can stand there and tell you how to have a healthy marriage, how to, how to fill your bank account, how to get all the things you want out of life. And it can sound good to you. And it can work. It can work. You, you, you can find CPAs, MBAs, you can find somebody that can stand before you, give you great advice how you can have success in your marriage, how your bank account can be full, how you can be personally happy. And receive joy in life. And these things can work. I'm not telling you they don't work. But this is what the word of God can do. It can come upon rotten, dead bones. Give flesh to them and fill them with breath. No man can do that. And if you proclaim Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that in effect is what has happened to you. He found you dead in your sin. He found you lost in your trespasses. You were blind, wandering around, and you didn't know up from down. And that breath came in, and it vivified you. It made you alive. It made you to experience life to the fullest. And it allows you to experience life eternal. And that is something man, no matter how wise, no matter how eloquent, no matter how gifted, could ever hope to. At the heart of what scripture is, we find it is something radically different. You see, it's not this list of proverbial wisdom. It's not information for how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not information for how to get along better with your wife. It is information that will save your life and make your life make a difference. Scripture testifies to itself. Peter, writing on scripture in 2 Peter, he offers us these words in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, you need to understand something. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He's saying, look, man didn't set out to say these things in and of himself. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter wants us to understand and what you have to understand when it comes to scripture is that it is man writing, but it is God inspired. 
God is, is inspiring. He is carrying along certain men, to borrow the wording from Second Peter. He's carrying along certain men by the power of his Holy Spirit to put down those things that we need to know. And I believe that God is also working to sanctify the text. He is, persever- he is preserving his text. He is carrying on the fidelity of his text even to today. So we have to know these things because we open up in verse 16 of 2 Timothy and Paul writes, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. He's got this, this, this weight of information that surrounds what Paul considers to be scripture. Now we talked last week and he said that, that Timothy had grown up with this understanding of the word of God. Paul wrote and said, Timothy, you have had the holy scriptures ever since you were a child, and they have made you wise to what end? They made you wise into salvation. And see, that's the reading of the Old Testament with the understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you're just to flip through the Old Testament, you'd read some great uh, genealogies, you'd read some great narrative accounts, and people stand in and say, man, we need to be leaders like David, that we go after the Goliaths of industry, and we do it with a small ragtag group of people that we can hurl at the enemy. That sounds kind of strange. I don't think I want to work for that guy. We see, but when we read Scripture with the understanding that all these things are pointing to Jesus, and that's the picture Jesus gives us, right? Luke 24, Jesus is w- walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, And he says, look, all these things point to me. Let me show you how I'm the conclusion of the Old Testament. Let me show you how all the things that were written before, I'm the answer. They find their fulfillment, their perfection in me. Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. But the question might arise in your mind, well, why then should we pay attention to the New Testament? Let Let me just give you a few examples this morning. We could spend hours doing this. You remember when we worked our way through 1 Timothy, when we found ourselves in 1 Timothy 5.18. What Paul does is he turns around and he is quoting the gospel account of Jesus in Luke 10.7. Jesus said these words in Luke 10.7. He said, he says that a laborer deserves his wages. Paul, writing in 1 Timothy 5.18 says, for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul looks at it and says, look, everything Jesus said that is recorded in the gospels is scripture. You need to bring these things into your life. You need to find your life living in submission to them. Peter, writing again in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, said this of the writings of Paul. He said, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I feel like that should be an understatement. He says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. You see, Peter, looking at the writing of Paul, says we need to put the writing of Paul on par. We need to set it at the same level as scriptures. And that's what he does. See, Paul had this understanding that he was not just a man writing churches and they could pick and choose those things that were more palatable to them. They could pick and choose those things which met with receptivity in their culture. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, said, I put you under oath before the Lord 
to have this letter read to all the brothers. In Colossians 4.16, he says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read among the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verses 37, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. We see and we recognize that those things written in Scripture aren't just written by men. They're not written by men because if, if, if that's the case, if it's just Paul has a bone to pick, if it's just Paul that has a soapbox to stand on and so he fires off this letter to Timothy in Ephesus, if that's all it is, then Timothy is, is free to look through and say, man, Paul, that's gonna be a harder thing to do. Maybe I should just try something else. See, but Paul sets it up. He wants us to understand that the bedrock of what a church does, that a bedrock of what a church follows has got to be the word of God. Because the word of God can make flesh come on dead bones and the word of God can make breath come in a dying man. And the word of God can change us. Look what else Paul says. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. We see God involved in this process to an intimate degree. He is exhaling and breathing out those things that he wants recorded in Scripture. He is so intimately involved in this. He's not given Paul and said, you know, just, just go write kind of what you think that I want. He's also not taking over Paul with this mechanical form of dictation where God says it and Paul just says, I'm sorry, God, what was that? But he has inspired them. He has given and ordered the events of their life so that the things they write are in actuality the word of God. God is intimately involved in the process of inspiration. But look what else it says. It says they are profitable. Scripture is profitable. Scripture leads us in all wisdom. Scripture builds us to all right understanding. Now Paul gives us four concrete ways in this passage that Scripture is profitable. He says it is profitable for teaching, it is profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now he looks at the first thing, he says it is profitable in teaching. What is the very thing that, that Paul has called Timothy to do? Or what is the very thing Paul has recognized Timothy has done? See, if you look back just a little ways into chapter 3 and verse 10 of 2 Timothy, we see that Timothy has followed Paul's teaching. Now, what is Paul's teaching based upon? It's based upon the text. It's based upon the Bible. It's based upon the sayings of Jesus as recorded it's handed down to him. It's based upon the discipleship that Paul has received from Jesus. And so if we want to set out on a very rigorous course of teaching, if the whole point of us coming together here on Sunday mornings is so that we might be mutually encouraged and instructed, what are we going to teach? Am I going to spend my week and, and, and I'm flipping through the channels, I'm like, oh man, Survivor's really, really lagging, but this amazing race is doing really well. What I need is, is a sermon series on the amazing race, and we'll call it the amazing race of life. Man, I just came up with that. That's pretty good. Maybe in the fall we'll roll that out. It's the amazing race of life, and we find that the first hurdle that you need to make it over in life is, is living through the time that you're a baby. Well, okay, so this sermon series is breaking down because you have very little role in that. 
That's just all about where you're born. See, Paul sets out and he says, what you need to establish your teaching on is the word of God. And if you're not digesting, if you're not receiving the word of God, then you have to wonder, what exactly are you receiving? What exactly are you being taught? Because we find that it is God's word, it is scripture that is profitable for teaching. We find that it is scripture that Paul has been pouring out and bathing Timothy in. We find that it is scripture that Jesus used when he was teaching the disciples. We find that it is scripture that in Luke 24, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, he didn't just turn to the disciples and say, you remember when Pete stubbed his toe? Man, let me tell you about that. That was was an interesting event. You remember what he said? Well, guys, you need to watch what you say. You need to be very careful. Don't let any coarse word come out of your mouth. No. When Jesus wants to turn and he wants to disciple the disciples, When he wants to train, when he wants to teach the apostles, what he does is he shows them all those places in Scripture that point to himself. He turns to Song of Songs, he turns to Proverbs, he turns to the Psalms, he turns to Genesis, he turns to Exodus. He turns to Ezekiel, he turns to Isaiah. He says, see me in the text. Teaching should come from the word of God. Look at this, secondarily, he says that it is profitable for reproof, for rebuking. And that's not something that's just super popular. We, we don't find ourselves signing up so that people would come and rebuke us, call us out on things, be harsh to our face. We'd a whole lot rather get an anonymous note that says, dear friend, you're terrible. You know, somebody that loves you, work on that. Just in case you're under the delusion that I'm soliciting you to write me anonymous notes, I don't read those. Those get file 13 um, Carol B. has a stack, though. At the end of my tenure here at Ridgecrest, we're going to have a great afternoon, and we're just going to read all of those anonymous notes. Some of those are probably very helpful, and maybe some of you have given me money in those anonymous notes. Please don't. If you're going to send me money, don't put it in an anonymous note, right? There's money there, right? <clears throat> then, then get in your jab at the end. He says that it is profitable for reproof. Now, what is Paul getting at with this idea of reproof? You see, what he's getting at is the word of God is that thing which is able to come to the center. And so if I look at Ben, and Ben is sitting here front and center, and so he's going to be my center in the center today. Thank you, Ben. And so when I come to Ben and I say, Ben, what you need to understand is that Scripture has this view of you. It has this understanding of who you are. It tells me something about you. And Ben's lost. He has no idea what I'm talking about. Ben's the the type of person we're going to encounter on April the 6th. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to invite people to come to our Easter service. And we're going to say, Ben, can I tell you a little bit about this this sermon? And the first verse of it is John 3, 16. We're going to lay that out there. But the conversation might also go like this. And, and, And we're looking at Scripture and we're laying Scripture over Ben's life. And I'm saying, Ben, you know, you claim to be a good person, Man, I think that's great. You obviously have a whole lot of kids, and and so you and your wife must get along at least part of the time. And so, Ben, Scripture sees you as a sinner, man. It sees you as lost. And, and, and Ben, I I know you think you're a good person, but let me ask you a question. Have Have you ever said anything that's not true? And Ben's like, man, everybody tells lies. I'm sure you lied to me in this presentation. And I'd chuckle and say, Bill, that's very funny. I'd say, but Ben, no, I haven't lied to you. And Ben says, well, yeah, I've, I've told some lies. 
So Ben, what do we call somebody that tells lies? He said, well, you know, <clears throat> somebody that's not very good with the truth. Said, Come on, Ben, what do you call somebody that, that tells lies? And Ben says, a non-truth teller. I say, don't lie to me, Ben. What do we call somebody that doesn't tell the truth? And Ben says, fine, call them a liar. I said, well, okay, if you're gonna say that word, I wouldn't choose it, but you know, that's the one you wanna go with. I said, Ben, have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? And Ben says, no, my wife has, though. I said, well, Ben, what do you call your wife? He says, a thief. I said, whoa. I said, okay, well, you're a liar and she's a thief. And so we, I say, Ben, this is what the word of God says. It says that you've transgressed his law, that you've, you've broken his law. And Ben, we find that in scripture that if you break one of the laws of God, that you're responsible for the whole thing, that the whole thing hinges on your keeping all of them. And so I'm showing Ben that, that Ben, Scripture is telling me you're lost. Scripture is telling me that, that you're, you're destined for an eternity separated from God, and that place is called hell. And it actually is hell to be there. And I turn and I'm showing Ben, this is how you can have eternal life. This is how you can accept these things. This is how you can come to know who Jesus is that he came and he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died so that you might have life and life to the fullest, that he was raised again to sit at the hand of God, that Jesus overcame death, that he overcame sin, and he extends this offer to you so that you might come to know him. And all these things are contained in Scripture. Scripture's pretty good at reproof. Scripture's pretty good at coming to the person that has sin in their life and saying, friend, you need to take this sin out of your life because it is contrary to the word of God. See, we're not picking on people. We're not picking and choosing things that we want to point out and ridicule them based on, but we're showing them how to live a life of fidelity, how to live a life under submission to the word of God. Now say Ben buys in. Spirit moves, calls Ben to salvation. Ben surrenders his life. He says, glory be, Jesus is my king. A little bit down the line, I find out that Ben is doing things that aren't just great. Maybe Ben's not quite as bad as some of those in our text who, if you'll remember back in 3, 1 through 9, that these people were lo- lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Ben's not that bad, but he's doing some things. He's falling back into his old lifestyle. So I go to Ben once again. I said, Ben, man, these are the things I see in your life, and these are the things I see in the text. Your life is not lining up with the text. Man, whether it's, whether it's adultery, fornication, whether it's, it's, it's anything, it's, it's stealing, whether it's pride, whether it's arrogance, whether it's envy, whatever sin that you find in your life, See, we find in, in Scripture, we find that, that God is revealing those things to us in Scripture. So I go to Ben and I say, man, I'm not, not trying to call you out. I'm not trying to be awkward. I'm not trying to be hate on you. But, but, but man, I love you in the Word of God, but have me do nothing else than show you how your life isn't lining up with his Word. It's offering you the balm of correction. That's what the Word of God is doing. Lastly, we find that the word of God is profitable for training in righteousness. I mean, if you want to build someone up, if you want to train someone in righteousness, you're describing to them, you're training them in how to be as Jesus was and is. If you want to train someone in righteousness, 
then you're likely going to open up to one of the Gospels. You're going to say, hey, hey, D, how about we get together and we read this together? He says, oh, my schedule's pretty tight. And so I go to Steve and I say, Steve, would you like to be trained in righteousness? D's too busy for me. Janice says, of course Steve would. Of course he would. He's got nothing but time. I know, Janice, he doesn't. He's a very busy man. And so I find somebody else. But I'm working to train them in righteousness. I'm working them to order their life on the scriptures. And I'm doing this in a very systematic method. We'd open up one of the gospels and we walk through it together and say, how does this teaching of Jesus find itself being resonated, lived out in your life? He said, man, I've never thought about that. I've never, I've never applied these teachings in my life And we find that as we overlay the scriptures in our life, as we're seeking to live our lives and finding ourselves living out the reality of this text in the day and day, family life, work life, commute, we find it being profitable. See, we're not trying to load up our bank accounts. We're not trying to be happy in the home. We're seeking to be faithful to the one who saved us. And in seeking to be faithful to Jesus, we'll find ourselves being corrected. We'll find ourselves being trained in righteousness. And for all of us who were once lost, we found ourselves being reproofed, being rebuked. We found ourselves that God was coming in. He was pulling back the shades off our eyes. He was exposing the deep-seated sin and our inability to overcome it. He was saving us, and he was doing it through the power of his word. Now look. Why do we do these things? We see verse 17, it says, we do this so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, around about the late 80s, early 90s, this, this understanding started really impacting a lot of churches that if you wanted to grow, you had to do certain things. And it was really begun as a noble thing. Nobody set out and said, at least nobody I know set out and said, I want to have the biggest church so that people recognize, worship, and adore me. Because those guys don't, they don't make it very long. They set out with a noble intent that they wanted to expand the kingdom. And so they turned to pragmatism. They said, our music's got to be this way. I've got to dress that way. We've got to have services that start at this time. We've got to engage in certain styles. And so they found everything being bent, being shaped, being moved according to what they saw as successful in the marketplace. Can the church learn from the marketplace? Are you kidding me? Absolutely. There's some great business principles that we can import and and use in the church, but that's not how we teach. That's not the substance. That's not the bedrock of what we do. Are there some great things to be learned from secular marriage counselors? Are you kidding me? Sure enough. Absolutely. But are those the things that we want to teach? Do we want to stand and say, man, these are 12 principles that are going to make your marriage great, that are going to give you the best, how many children do we have here, nighttime time with your spouse? And, and, And these are the things that are just going to make all of this so much better for you. So you get to the end of that. You recognize there's not a whole lot of substance. There's not a whole lot that was separating the church from the world. And the more we talked about things that make people great, the more uncomfortable it became to talk about the sin in us that made us awful. 
that made us terrible. That's why Paul is calling Timothy not to handle the situation there in Ephesus with, with those things that he might have learned from his Greek father, but he's saying import those things. Use those things that you have learned from your years of study in the word. And it will work to train you in righteousness. And Timothy is the man of God described in this passage and Paul says that he will be complete. He will be perfected. You see, but it's not restricted just to Timothy. It's not, it doesn't find its fulfillment just in me. We find that all of us, that if, if you are applying the word of God to your life, that it should be teaching, reproofing, correcting, and training you. That it should be changing who you are. As you read, as you study, as you meditate and digest and just, just ruminate on the word of God. As you flip through the Psalms and you read of David's great love for God and God's great love for him and how he is being torn apart. You find yourself also being torn apart. You find yourself also being healed, being nurtured by the words that God inspired David to write. And you're finding yourself being complete. But this isn't completeness in just that you know, this kind of Jerry Maguire deal where you're, you're on there and you see the, this great conversation where it says, you, you know, you complete me or whatever the, Monica, how do you do the sign language for that? This, this idea of you complete me. You know, we don't, we don't come into the relationship. I can't do that. We don't find ourselves coming into this relationship and saying, God, would you complete me? Yeah, this. Would you complete me? We find ourselves coming into the relationship God recognizes that we're whole, that we're wrecked, that we're wretched. And he completely alters what our understanding of being complete is. He completely explodes all of our conceptions, all of our ideology, all of our expectations, and he so far exceeds it. And he does so by exposing us to Christ. See, Christ is the one revealed in the scripture. Christ is the one making us complete. And Christ is the one equipping us for every good work. We find out that the the person of God is the one who is complete. The person of God is the one who is doing good works and the person of God who is the one who is equipped for good works. You want to have success in your family? You want to have success in business? Give yourself to the study of God's work. You want to find yourself being faithful to God? It's not going to happen by accident. You want to find yourself to quit circling the same sins that you've struggled with for so long? Quit setting New Year's resolutions. Quit agreeing with your discipleship partner that you won't do these things anymore. Commit yourself to being founded, to being established, to being immersed in your study of God's word. And you will find these things taking place. See, the question for us this morning is how are you encountering the word? How are you encountering the word of God? As we move to a close, I want you to consider how you've encountered the word of God this week. 
And some of us have Bible reading calendars and so for the last 10 minutes before we go to sleep and forget everything we've read, we are cramming and we are reading as quickly as possible. And I found myself doing this before, especially when you're three or four days behind. You're like, ah, oh, baguette, 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 ha, 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 page, page, page. How are you encountering the word of God? See, when we read the word of God, when we read the Bible, we're encountering Jesus. And he's communicating to you through his text. Man, God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you so that you might have eternal life. So that you wouldn't be separated from God, so that you wouldn't spend eternity in hell. And God, through the orchestration of his spirit, has put together this collection of books. He's put together these collections of letters of instruction. And so the question becomes, how are you encountering them? As you look through the word of God, as you look through scripture, there are places in there where we are being taught, we are being built up. There are places in there for the lost person, there are places in there for the, for the Christian whose heart has grown cold for reproof. That he would arrest us in our pride, arrest us in our arrogance, arrest us in our lostness. And there are places for gentle correction. Places where he could steer us back. Elements of misunderstanding that you've imported into your Christianity that when you read the word of God, you say, aha, I was wrong. And lastly, we see that the word of God is profitable for the training in righteousness. And God's desire is that all of us would come to be righteous. In fact, Jesus declares, be holy as I am holy. Could have also said to be righteous as the son is righteous. Let me pray for us.